Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 20th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, welcome to everybody for our last show of 2022. We're going to be on hiatus after today until the 8th of January, but we hopefully we'll leave the people with something they're excited about from political wire. Joining us for, I believe, the third time, coming up about 15 minutes, Kagan Goddard. And um, there's probably no better source on the internet from uh, political wire, so you know anybody that can put together and find so many political articles, that's somebody that knows a lot about politics. So we're going to discuss um, all the happenings and get his opinion with Tegan Goddard here in just a few minutes. But until then, um, you know, we've been discussing a lot of serious stories, and we're going to discuss one really serious one right off, but there's also a few fun stories like um, back in the old days when uh, South Carolina tried to coin their money. we got one or two of those, hopefully, too. Uh, but let's start right off with um, the recommendations. I believe this is the final meeting or the final hearing of the January 6th committee, and they made a very, very strong recommendations that um, former President Donald Trump face indictments. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on such a strong statement by the committee? Well, I'm glad to see that they, you know, put some teeth in their um, final report or final recommendations. You just have to wonder if the Justice Department will act on it or feel like it's a disruption of, you know, forward motion to go back. It'll just be interesting to see how the Justice Department responds. Yes. Well, Tim, I'm going to move on right to the next part of this. Do you think there will actually be any indictments uh, take place? Well, I don't know about Trump, but, you know, there were people other than Trump that were mentioned in this. Um like, uh, you know, his attorney, and, and I'm sure Rudy Giuliani is in this, and probably Steve Bannon, uh, but uh, Trump and John Eastman were mentioned by name. I, I'm thinking there's going to be some indictments of somebody. I just don't know it'll, if it'll be Trump. David, we are in uncharted territory. This is the first president that ever had a criminal referral from Congress. Uh, not not Nixon, not Andrew Johnson, not anybody had this uh, done. And so I just, who, who knows what the Justice Department will do with it. Uh, 
And uh, I guess a lot of our questions will be answered tomorrow when the full report is released. And then people can pour over the uh, particulars in it just to see how far this goes. Yes. And well, let me ask uh, and Catherine, Timmy, the one of y'all can answer this. So right now, um, the House is controlled by Democrats. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, Democrats have the majority on committees. In just a few weeks after the new year, um, Republicans presumably take over. Obviously, they have the majority. Now, can Kevin McCarthy become speaker is a whole other question we've discussed. I'm sure we'll discuss again. But we figure the Republicans will have some control over Congress, um, you know, just because they have the, the majority. Does, this, does that change things on this? I mean, can they pull those orders from Congress or reconvene and, and rescind the recommendation, or is it set in stone because this committee happened at a specific place in time and that recommendation carries on in the future past um, this majority? Either one of y'all know. This has been sent to the Department of Justice now. That's it. The Department of Justice is, cannot be touched by, you know, any of this. I mean, he already has um, Jack Smith appointed as a special counsel, um, actually with two items, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, you know, and this January 6th investigation. It's ongoing. Congress cannot stop an ongoing investigation of the Department of Justice by another action or anything else. It's, that's one reason they wanted to wind this up uh, before the Republicans took control because the Republicans, one of their first actions to be to shut this committee down. But the committee has basically finished its business now and it's in the hands of uh, the Justice Department. Yes, so it gets turned over to Merrick Garland, the Attorney General's office, correct? Yes. And so and he decides Catherine, what to do. Yes. Well, Catherine, do you think uh what do you think Mar- Merrick Garland will decide? I think it's really it's really tough to excuse <coughs> me to say. I think Tim's right that um some, you know, some of these characters are going to be um indicted and you know, taken through the process. I just don't know what they'll do with a former president. It's just really hard to know. It's like Tim said, it's uncharted territory. And I think there's always concerns about how it disrupts history and moving forward. So it's just going to be a really interesting case to watch since it's the first time in history that we've seen anything like this. Yes. Well, I don't know if, if Merrick Garland will recommend charges either, but if he does, I do not mind being the person to let Donald Trump know. If Merrick Garland were to be on the Supreme Court, he couldn't have brought charges against him, so he kind of did it to himself. He could have had him on the Supreme Court out of the way instead of Neil Gorsuch. Well, so, you know. Except we just have a different <laughs> attorney general. I mean, Yes, we would. Yeah, I know we would. <laughs> and I, I know. But, you know. 
sometimes you can confuse people. It, the um, irony is great. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yes. Re- and so, remember uh, that, something. That, that will be. Go ahead. I was just going to say, do do remember though, this is a symbolic action that has been taken by this committee. Uh, the Department of Justice is not required by this committee, any other committee later on, uh, or Congress to do anything. They operate independently of the Congress. Um, so that that's that's where we stand. But don't you think, David, that the appointment of Jack Smith as a special counsel? Uh, to deal with this is rather telling. Uh, yeah, I, I just um, – it could go so many ways because there is a political implication here, and that's where I want to get next because that is important too. Um, do you think – well, I guess there's kind of different ways to look at this, and one's how the Democrats look at it in the Biden administration. But let's talk about Republicans. Um you know, we've seen that Donald Trump has lost some support, and we can probably debate on how polling impacts the Republican primary and so how much he actually lost. But I think he has lost some support among the Republican electorate. Um, Catherine, do you think he can use any kind, kind of indictment or even this recommendation of an indictment with the Republican base – to regain favor and say, look, if those Democrats come in after me again and actually help him hold off Ron DeSantis and others? Uh, well, I certainly think he'll try. Um, I don't know with some of his latest antics. I'm just wondering <laughs> how much um, – the word I'm looking for. Uh, I'm just wondering how much support he can maintain uh, in the face of all that's been happening. But I, uh, I um, am not good at gauging the people who support him because I just don't get it. So... Um, but I certainly think he'll use it, absolutely. And we'll have to see how <laughs> how well he does that. Excuse me. Well, Tim, same thing. Politically, how does this impact not the general side of things, but just the primary side of things? Until there's an indictment, I don't think it really affects it at all because most people that follow politics at all knew that something like this was probably coming down the pike, and it's been known for some time, and including in that time was the time of the recent election when Trump candidates were running all over the country And certainly Trump didn't get a bump there. If he got anything, he got a fist in the mouth uh, from the voters. So uh, right now, I don't think it makes any difference, especially if this goes no further. Uh, But if there's an indictment, then there could be a difference. 
uh, including the fact that Trump may have to, you know, drop out of the presidential race if he's indicted. Uh, so right right now, I'm going to say nothing, but down the pike, who knows? I think he actually uses it, whether it's just this, it becomes an indictment. Anything that happens, I think he uses, I think he uses to his advantage. This is very much a contentious group of folks that are spoiling for a fight. They think that Democrats are just out to get everybody. It's not because I think for a lot of, you know, base Republican voters and maybe some sliver of the Democratic base, it's not about policy solutions. It's about not being the other side and getting the best of the other side. You know, we've heard on the libs for so long. That's the basis of politics for so many people. I mean, this is a party who a good percentage of the folks, let's go Brandon, was like a a message for them. Like that was like the theme of the campaign, and that was absolutely nothing to do with policy. Um, and so I think that actually he uses this. It helps him um, in, in this weird way. And I, like I said, this is within the electorate of the Republican Party. You know, it just helps there because when when the FBI, uh, when all those um, classified documents were found and the FBI came in, Trump used that to his advantage. And this, I think, and, and really it should have been something that hurt him because it showed how callous he was with the people's business. But um, this is where we're at. In politics, in this point in the 21st century, and so until something shakes the, um, you know, the landscape, I think that that's where we're at. Um, it's sad. I have a question, Tim. You said that you think that if he's indicted, he'll have to, he won't be able to run for president. What no, I did. That? I I, oh, I, I didn't I didn't say he would legally wouldn't be able to. I, I just thought he might be forced from the race because his numbers would crater or something like that if he were okay. indicted. Yeah. So I don't think that was will cause his his um numbers to crater. I mean he told us this before he ever, you know, took the presidency. I could stand in the middle of um Times Square and shoot somebody. Um while this is not shooting anybody, it, it, he's it, with that group of voters. He's more than Teflon. He just um, continues to be able to do whatever, and it not harm him in any way. Well, let's go ahead and, and shift gears, and it's going to kind of we're going to start off with a lot of the same thing with our guest. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, the um, owner and founder of Political Wire, Mr. Tagan Goddard. Welcome, Mr. Goddard. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you back. Well, um, we were talking about Donald Trump, and as you know, that's where we want to begin, but we want to back up even further. Um, right after the um, midterm elections happened, just within a few days, Donald Trump had his 2024 uh, presidential announcement speech in Mar-a-Lago, and Let's just say it was very, very different than previous speeches. Just kind of give us your thoughts on how this presidential rollout has gone. 
Um, it, it's gone terribly. Uh, the, his speech at Mar-a-Lago, first of all, it was forced. Uh, there didn't seem to be a compelling reason at the time to have that have that speech um, to kick off a campaign um, without, you know, at least regrouping. At, you know, at some point after the midterms, uh, there's probably not a single strategist on the Republican side that thought it was smart. Um, a lot of strategists on the Democratic side were grateful because it uh, severely weakened him. Um, it was a speech that could only be described as low energy, using the nickname that he uh, uh, once gave to Jeb Bush. Um, and, you know, he forced the speech so much that he didn't even have uh, his family members at the speech, uh, which was kind of interesting in itself. So it just seemed, it, for whatever reason, there, there may have been motivations that we don't fully understand. Um, but it didn't, did not seem to make sense if you were trying to win the Republican nomination to, to give a speech at that time. Yes, and kind of a sub-question off of that, um, we've seen a lot of polls, and it still shows that Donald Trump is, is very, very close. I think most show Donald Trump still leading Ron DeSantis and the field that's just a bunch of people at seemingly 1%. But um, – I have a theory that if we talk about who does not like to get polled, it is the MAGA base, the voters that Donald Trump brought into the Republican Party. So I want to ask you if this theory is correct, that is it likely that Donald Trump actually has more support within the Republican Party than polling will show throughout this race? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's probably a fair assumption. Um, I think it's been uh, been shown over the last few cycles that many of Donald Trump's supporters are not um, are not willing to be polled, and sometimes there, you know, there's a hidden Trump vote out there. I, I don't think it's 100% certain that that's the case, but I think it's fair to fair to question whether that's the case. Um, when you look at the polls for the Republican primary, you have um, you've had several polls showing a head-to-head matchup between DeSantis and Trump, and actually DeSantis is leading in head-to-head matchups. But as you said, you know, that that is not the way a Republican primary will, will unfold. There will be multiple candidates. There will probably be more than a half dozen. There may be more than a dozen candidates in the end, depending upon how this shakes out. And in that type of uh, environment, it probably uh, is beneficial to Trump. Uh, if we remember back in the 2015-2016 primary, um, Trump never really got a majority of the vote, um, yet he still came away with the Republican nomination. So, um, and that's just because there were so many candidates carving up the field. And already, right now, you've got people uh, who, who, you know, in, you know, potentially in the field, people like Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who seems intent on running for president. Um, you've got, you know, someone like Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who seems pretty intent on running for president. Um, then you've got other people like Mike Pence, you know, who obviously is estranged from Donald Trump at this point. Um, maybe Mike Pompeo would, you know, would run. And then, of course, DeSantis as well. So depending upon how the field shakes out, I think Trump could definitely win. But it's very clear that he is a weakened candidate than he than he was, you know, four or five years ago um, or, or even as far back as you know, as far back as 2019, 2020, he's just a weakened candidate in the Republican uh, primary. And, you know, he's got all sorts of legal issues uh, coming at him as well, which are, are probably distracting him. 
and um, and may impact how this race goes. Yes. Now, you know, you, I think everybody agreed what you said. The rollout was not good. It was low energy. But then last week, Donald Trump had the big announcement, and people were speculating all kind of things, which actually have to do with politics, like an early announcement of a vice presidential uh, running mate. But instead, it was a set of NFTs. Um, now, obviously, I mean, the video to roll it out was almost like the Saturday Night Live skit where he called himself more popular than Lincoln and Washington. Um, but as crazy as these uh, NFTs may have appeared with the graphic designs, there's a financial component which you reported about. Just kind of give us the political and I guess somewhat the financial implications of all this. Well, you know, as you said, it was like a Saturday Night Live skit, the video that accompanied this announcement, and Trump teased it as a major announcement, so people were suggesting maybe he was going to weigh in on the race for speaker, maybe he was going to come out against Kevin McCarthy or, or, come, or, or come in strong for Kevin McCarthy. People suggested maybe he would even name a presidential running mate, you know, early, and there were all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of speculation out there. And instead it was this, you know, this rollout of these digital trading cards or NFTs, as you said, um, which seemed a, seemed a little silly. Although for all of those people who mocked him uh, about that, within about 12 hours, he had sold every one of them out and had, had pocketed about, well, he and whoever is sponsoring this effort pocketed about four and a half million dollars in about 12 hours. So, um, it, it was kind of extraordinary in that way as well. But, again, it didn't seem to make sense for somebody who was running for president to do something like this, put out trading cards, with which were really nothing more than photos that were Photoshopped with his head on bodies of other, you know, other people. And it's been, been determined since that many of these images appear to have been uh, – he didn't have the right to use these images. And so – there, there's potentially going to be, you know, uh, legal issues to come after that, you know, issues that he did not have the copyright for, that he would, didn't have the rights for. Um, and there's, if you go up on uh, on Twitter or TikTok and, and search for this, you'll find all sorts of uh, in, interesting um, observations made by made on some of these trading cards that he didn't even have the rights to use them. So that will be interesting in itself to play out. But Nonetheless, in 12 hours, he pocketed four and a half million dollars. He and his his partner in this, whoever that was. So it just was a very odd, very odd thing. I mean, it's not the most controversial thing he's ever done, but it's probably the weirdest thing he's ever done. Yes, and I think as far as him being able to make all that money so quickly uh, for the buyers, uh, a fool and his money are soon parted. Um, sums <clears throat> that up. Um, well, let me ask you, you mentioned Kevin McCarthy. Uh, one of the most interesting positions or speculations of what will happen in a politician in America is what will happen to Kevin McCarthy. I know you um, reported of a, like a five different scenarios somebody laid out. What is your thoughts on what's going to happen with Kevin McCarthy and the presumed Republican majority in Congress um, after the new year? Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. I wish I fully knew the answer to that, but um, logic would tell you 
that Kevin McCarthy uh, is most likely to become speaker on January 3rd or soon thereafter, uh, simply because he's the Republican who has the most support. And there does not seem to be a, a viable alternative um, that could emerge. If you recall, when John Boehner was ousted as speaker uh, and Kevin McCarthy attempted to become speaker after that, there was a viable alternative for the Republicans and Paul Ryan. And so McCarthy had to step aside and Paul Ryan became uh, became the speaker. This time around, there does not seem to be a viable alternative, at least at this point. So the most the most logical thing, it may not be clean, it may not be a clean vote, it may take multiple rounds, but it doesn't make sense to me that the Republicans would not eventually choose Kevin McCarthy as their speaker because just because there is no viable alternative. There are all these uh, theories uh, that have uh, popped up where, um, where, where possibly a Democrat or a moderate Republican could end up becoming speaker if, uh, if lawmakers cross, cross party lines in order to vote, vote for some sort of consensus speaker. Um, I just find that highly unlikely since the vast majority of the Republican caucus would be terribly opposed to that. And, and so that, I think they will find a way to make, uh, make Kevin McCarthy speaker. Remember, while technically you need 218 votes to become speaker, that, that's what McCarthy will need, um, and he only has a, a you know a few vote margin. He's only able to lose, I think, four um, four lawmakers. If some of them simply abstain from the vote, uh, the number that he needs uh, falls you know falls from 218. So there may be some deal that's cut where some people who don't want to vote for Kevin McCarthy or who have said that they would not vote for Kevin McCarthy, that they may end up abstaining. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But I can't really predict it. I think it will probably be messy. Um, but just because it's messy doesn't mean it's not going to work out in Kevin McCarthy's favor. And then in his favor, it may continue to be messy for the next two years uh, because of working with a lot of these individuals. Well, uh, thank you so much for those questions. I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. We'll pass it to Tim for some more interesting topics. Catherine? Hey, thank you so much for being on with us today. I'm glad we could arrange this to work with your schedule and ours. Um, I want to ask you, it was a perfect segue, about, um, excuse me, I have a, I'm getting a terrible cold, so I have a cough. <laughs> Um, about this sort of change with Nancy Pelosi stepping down as speaker and uh, then minority leader Jeffries coming in and what you think the legacy of Nancy Pelosi will be and then how our bench is lined up for the future for uh, leadership in the House. Well, um I think I think Nancy Pelosi will go down in history of, as one of the uh, most uh, incredible uh, speakers uh, in the history of the House of Representatives. Uh, she's certainly the most powerful leader uh, of our generation. Um, I don't think I think you have to go back to someone like uh, Lyndon Johnson, where you can find someone with the political skills um, to ma- to uh, manage you know the very complicated legislative process. Um, her record is extraordinary, uh, absolutely extraordinary. And uh, it's really, as a political junkie and as someone who has, 
you know, followed politics passionately for years. Um, it's it's actually truly a pleasure to have watched her because she is an extraordinary, extraordinary talent. Um, and so I think have the Democrats will the, miss her. Have you watched the HBO special with her, of her with her daughter's uh, footage over the year? I, I've only seen a few clips from it. I haven't been. I haven't it's had really time very, to very good. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Yeah, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't mean my, to interrupt. You. No, no, right. no, no. It's it's on my list, and I and I, perhaps over the holidays I'll find the time to be able to watch it. Um, as for as for Hakeem Jeffries and um, and what's next, you know, in typical Nancy Pelosi fashion, she managed a transition to a new generation of leadership um, in in as smooth a fashion as you can imagine, and. Um, Steny Hoyer and uh, Jim Clyburn stepped back from their positions to allow this new generation of leadership to come in. It was all choreographed and stage managed ahead of time. And what's remarkable to me is that after an election in which the Democrats lose control of the House of Representatives, one would think that you would have the Democrats, you know, pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other, you know, at each other's throats, you know, Democrats in disarray, that type of thing that you that you hear about. Um, and instead, the Democrats seem like a well-oiled machine here in the House. And it's the Republicans who are fighting with each other, even though they have won the majority, um, albeit a slim one. And I think that that is really, uh, again, the kind of the final, you know, the final chapter of Nancy Pelosi's legacy as speaker, the fact that she was able to do this and the fact that she's able to leave on her terms. Now, what, what's also interesting to me, extremely interesting to me, um, is how both uh, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, who have stepped away from leadership entirely, um, are going to stay in their seats in Congress. And one of the key reasons for that is they do not want to vacate those seats at this point and wait for a special election because they know that Kevin McCarthy will have a hard time uh, getting the votes to become speaker. And if they were to vacate their seats, that would make it easier for him. Because again, like, as I said previously, he wouldn't need the 218 votes. Um, he, he would need something less than that uh, if, if they were to step away. So Democrats are not, uh, are, are not moving to, to vacate a seat. And again, it's, it, it just shows that Nancy Pelosi is playing this game many, many steps ahead ahead of her uh, adversaries and her chief adversary, I guess, well, after Donald Trump, who seems to be her number one adversary, but her her chief adversary in the House, Kevin McCarthy, I, I think he will, if he ultimately becomes speaker, as he should, he is going to find it a very tough act to follow. Absolutely. Um, and so looking forward, um, do you see any other, um, you know, strong leaders coming up that will be able to hold this uh, strength that you describe? Well, I think this I think this new leadership that they have in the House is uh, is a very so- very solid, built over multiple years. You know, it, it was one of these things where the, none of them faced a challenge for their leadership slots. So, um, you know, again, I think, again, it's, it just shows that the Democrats have kind of 
put themselves in a really good position. Uh, you know, they've got Hakeem Jeffries, who, who must be 25 years younger than Nancy Pelosi, um, and he is now the Democratic leader in the House, uh, first African-American leader in the House. And, um, you know, I, I would suspect, given how he's handled himself so far, that he could be there a good long time. Well, you know, again, it's a tough act to follow Nancy Pelosi. Nobody has, has, has proven themselves as good as her. But, um, but nonetheless, I think the Democrats are well positioned. In terms of some other, you know, other people in the House, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out. Um, it, it'll, it's a little bit harder when the Democrats are in the minority for some of the of course, yeah. uh, opposition, part, opposition party to kind of, you know, put themselves in the spotlight. But uh, nonetheless, it, it should be uh, – it should be interesting. So the, the House is, uh, you know, obviously with, a, with such a narrow majority and with a presidential election coming uh, in two years, uh, I think Democrats have a, you know, at worst a 50-50 shot at retaking the House uh, in two years. And so, and depending upon how the presidential race shakes out, uh, it could actually be higher than that depending upon who the candidates are. But so we, we, we may see this new generation of leadership in, in charge in, in a short period of time as well. So anyway, fascinating, that fascinating would be, to see how it's all worked itself out. Thank you so much for, the, for those thoughts. I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thanks a lot. Sure, thank you. Good, good evening, Mr. Goddard. Thank you for being with us again today. Um, of course. Political people political journalists, uh, political media personalities and other celebrities, pollsters, educators, all these folks. Twitter has been an extremely popular destination for them. Now we have added to the mix Elon Musk. And I just have to ask you to give me your take on him and what exactly is he trying to do there? <laughs> well, that's an impossible question. Um, it's, it's very hard, very hard to understand what he's trying to do. Obviously, he he got himself in a situation where he made an offer for the firm. It was a legal, legally binding offer. He he then spent many many months trying to back away from that because he realized that he was paying far too much for this. Um, for the social media platform, and um, and now you know, and, and he, he was going to lose that because he had signed a contract to buy the firm. So he ultimately has bought the firm. It's caused really chaos across his own personal empire. Um, he's had to sell, you know, billions of dollars of shares of Tesla stock. Um, at least one major shareholder of Tesla is getting antsy because. Uh, Elon Musk seems to be focused on, you know, fighting with people on Twitter rather than running Tesla. Um, that's not to mention SpaceX, which is another obviously very important company. And so, uh, you know, most interestingly, over the course of the last weekend, Elon Musk ran a, poll, a Twitter poll, uh, which, of course, is unscientific, but nonetheless, asking users of Twitter uh, whether or not he should step aside as CEO of the company that he now owns. And that poll was uh, pretty overwhelmingly in favor of him stepping aside. So uh, reports, as, uh, reports of today are that he is, in, in fact, looking for a CEO to run the company. I think he probably fears getting booted out of Tesla as the CEO of Tesla. 
by the board if he doesn't do so. Um, and also, I think there's there's probably some uh, realization on his part that he's not that good at running Twitter, <laughs> and that he's uh, he's he's probably caused the company even more damage than it had before. Uh, Twitter has never been a well-run company in the 15 plus years that it's been in existence. It's never mm-hmm. made money, um, and mm-hmm. uh, so it is a it is a real challenge even for the uh, even even for the best of you know CEOs. Um, nonetheless, he owns it. He, he you know you you can all you can already go on the service, and if you actually look at the advertising uh, on the service, you can see that it, the the quality of the ads has degraded over the course of the last uh, you know four to six weeks. And so I suspect the revenue has already fallen off on Twitter. So he he really needs somebody who's very professional, somebody who's actually got a um, a much sharper vision for what to do there and who understands the mechanics of running a software firm. If you think mm-hmm. of what what Elon Musk has done in the past, uh, he's run hardware firms. You know, cars are hardware. You know, rockets are hardware. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps he's good at those. Software is a little bit different, and you know, maybe he's having trouble there. So it's a Anyway, it's it's impossible to understand what he's trying to do because it, it really doesn't make any sense. But mm-hmm. is is uh, is there another platform that you can see on the horizon that's going to step forward and uh, shall we say take advantage of Twitter's problems? Oh, sure. There's a there's a few that have tried um, or, or that are have put themselves forward. Interestingly enough, late last week. Um, I noticed myself that I was getting a ton of followers to these to two of these new platforms. One was called Mastodon, and one is called uh, Post News. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them have their plus and minuses. Um, and I noticed that I think it was on Thursday night last week that I, I was just getting a surge of new followers, and I didn't understand why that was happening. And then I realized that Elon Musk had banned uh, a handful of journalists from Twitter. And that, that, that really was a breaking point for many Twitter users saying, hey, I need to get on a new platform because if he's going to start banning journalists, then this, this platform is not trustworthy. So, there, you know, Elon Musk has, has caused the service great harm because he has actually given these, these other platforms at least a fighting chance. It's extremely hard to start one of these social networks because – the way that social networks work is that they have users, and the reason you want to be part of them is that they already have the people that you would like to follow on them. And mm-hmm. starting that from scratch becomes extremely hard because you have to get people actually on that platform. Um, anyway, inadvertently, I think Elon Musk has helped that process forward. Um, of the two that I that, – well, again, I mentioned the two of them, two alternatives that I actually have accounts on, I, I remain on Twitter – at Political Wire is the handle, and I've got a similar handle on Mastodon um, as well as on Post.News. Um, Post.News seems to me the most like Twitter in terms of its interface, particularly using a, you know on the web. Um, it mm-hmm. also seems to have a pretty decent follow, a decent group of users who follow politics. Um, Mastodon is an interesting interesting uh, site technically. Well, it's not a site actually. It's a, it's actually a series of sites. It's a decentralized server, decentralized service that uses multiple servers to host the users. And so no, no, no one, there's no central, centralized control of the service, which is, which is appealing um, 
to a lot of people. Um, but nonetheless, it, it may it may actually make it impossible once you know undesirable people you know start using the service. For instance, if if Nazis start to use the service or other races yeah. start to use the service, it, it'll be very hard to block them. Um, whereas uh, Post News, which was started by the founder of uh, Waze, the Waze auto, auto, uh, uh, the Waze mapping application for you know for driving directions, um, mm-hmm. it is a they're 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 slowly opening the doors. If you were to go and try to sign up today, you're not actually going to get in. There's a waiting list, and they're they're letting people in you know, slowly so that the service can handle it. And the reason for that is is they're really trying to moderate the conversations and get rid of hate speech and things like that. So it's really interesting what they're trying to do, whether it will whether it will be able to get as big as as Twitter. I have uh I, I could not tell you, but um Elon Musk has made it easier for these alternatives because he's made Twitter yeah. so insufferable over the course of the last month. Yeah. So so Talking about big platforms, we 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 know that in the new omnibus um, budget um, that Congress is making some efforts to ban TikTok on all government devices. But TikTok has a little over a billion users worldwide, and by far, among the public at least. The United States has the most users on TikTok. Uh, and and so I wonder, what about the public who uses TikTok uh, heavily? Will there be any legislative move to ban TikTok in the United States altogether? Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. I think it becomes extremely hard uh, for particularly for a country like the United States to ban these services. Now, I understand the concern that people have and the fact that there's data on users of this platform. The data is, is much of the data is on servers in China because it is a Chinese-run company, and mm-hmm. that the Chinese government government may or may not have um, a, the ability to monitor and or you know, use the service to their own for their own means. That may or may not be true, but um, it, it is obviously of concern to many people. And so the, what Congress can do is they can actually say, uh, we do not want this app on any government-owned devices because those devices may have, you know, certain identifiers that would, you know, would give the Chinese, uh, you know, a certain insight into how the functioning of the U.S. government in some way. I mean, again, we're mm-hmm. making – you know, a, a huge assumptions here about how they can do this because right now on at least secure, you know, relatively secure devices like an iPhone, um, there, you know, there's not a lot of information that you're actually getting. But from the user's point of view, I think the bigger concern, a, a bigger concern that we have in the United States is that if you do have hundreds of millions of people uh, using this service, that messaging can be pushed to these people, that, you know, propaganda and, and and things like that can be pushed to these people in order to potentially distort elections or or distort Americans' judgment on, judgment on certain issues or news of the day or things like that. So that's possible. It is a tech, technologically, it's a fascinating platform. It's not so much a social network as it is a 
streaming platform. Uh, it's much more mm -hmm. entertainment for the user than it is a social network where you're connecting with mm -hmm. other people. But um, nonetheless, it's um, it's it's interesting. So I I don't I don't blame uh, lawmakers for wanting to take this off government devices. There's a and you can you can wonder why any government issued phone should have something like TikTok on it because you really probably <laughs> shouldn't be consuming entertainment that way on a government device. But nonetheless, um, it does raise some questions for us. Certainly. All right. I have one more question for you, and I'm going to throw it back to David, but this is one that you've been following. Um, Mark Meadows, yep. as it turns out, has been texting with at least 34 congressmen surrounding the events of January 6, 2021. And, you know, we we have seen some of these texts now. There's nutty conspiracy stuff. There's uh, plans, of course, to how the election can be overthrown in these texts. Um, and you're in a position to know if a story has legs. And I was wondering, is this story going to have some legs to it? Um, my gut, my gut instinct is that yes, it will, and my gut instinct is is that Mark Meadows is in deep legal trouble right now. Oh, and I think, and I think that if you looked at what happened yesterday with the January sixth committee holding their final public hearing, um, mm -hmm. sometime tomorrow that they're expected to release their final report, as well as mm -hmm. all of the evidence behind that report publicly, it will be fascinating to see how much more information is in these in this reporting that will all be made public, but also will be going to the Justice Department, which is already conducting its own probe of what happened on January 6th. And so the Justice Department possibly has information that Congress never had, and the Justice Department has the ability to grant immunity to certain witnesses for their testimony about other people. And, you know, obviously, Mark Meadows is one of those people who was at the center of all of this. Um, the only one probably closer to the center of it was Donald Trump himself. Um, mm -hmm. And so the fact that Mark Meadows was texting with congressmen and, and understood their motivations, and from the text that we've seen, which were published by the website Talking Points Memo, um, mm -hmm. from, from, the, from the communications that we've seen, he didn't really do a whole lot to push back on the fact that you had these congressmen who were contemplating, um, you know, extraordinary ways to keep Donald Trump in power after the election. Mm. So the fact that he did not really push back on the, that and, and in some ways encourage that really plays into the narrative of the January 6th committee, which said that Donald Trump orchestrated the entire, the entire thing that led to the riot and the insurrection at the Capitol. So it mm. was a, obviously a dark day for democracy and, um, I, I would suspect that Mark Meadows, I hope he has a good criminal defense attorney because he will need one. Oh, wow. Well, I thank you for that, and uh, thank you for being on with us, and I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, Mr. Goddard, we thank you so much for coming on. You mentioned post. Um, I, the Kudzu Vine actually threw my name, David McLaughlin. We have a post account as well. So um, good to hear more about the platform from you. But uh, before we let you leave, we know that around this time of year you do a lot of specials 
uh, for new um, subscribers to Political Wire. So tell our listeners how they can find it, and if you want to share any of those deals to get you some new readers, we're open to it. <laughs> You're very, very kind. Yeah, there is a, there is a holiday special on Political Wire if you're interested in becoming a member for 20% off. Um, and there are links on the site uh, if you would like to do that. But I, I'm very appreciative to uh, readers who read under any circumstances, and if they want to become members, they, they get all sorts of additional features, um, which would include um, some bonus newsletters, uh, such as Inside Elections, which is a favorite of readers. Um, as well as features like no advertising on the site for a much cleaner look of the site, um, as well as commentary by myself. Um, and so um, you'll get all of that with a membership as well as support a site. Um, the goal of Political Wire has always been to show you at any given time what's important in politics right now. So it's a site that people tend to go to multiple times during the day. They tend to leave it open in a web browser and uh, in refresh, hit refresh often, and, uh, and, and uh, it's a quick way to see what is happening in politics right now. So for those of us who, who follow it closely, um, it's become you know, kind of indispensable to so many. So I'm very appreciative for everybody who reads. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on this afternoon, and have a great holiday season. You too. Happy holidays to all of you, and thanks for having me. Thank you, Thank you so much. That was Tegan Goddard, Political Wire. Um, we like our listeners to read Political Wire. That way they do their homework. Um, yes, sir. They know a lot of what we're <laughs> talking about. Um, so uh, it's great to have him on. We just got just a little more time, and I talked about one of those fun stories. By no means is this the most important story in politics, but it was just too entertaining. And that would be, I guess it was late last week or maybe – um, I guess early in the week, some point in the week, Slate Magazine, someone at Slate Magazine who was, I guess, looking on Facebook Marketplace, began to notice <laughs> that there was a um, seller in Arizona who had all these similar interests and items of clothing and items of exercise that Senator Kirsten Cinema also had. Um, a lot of crossover. I don't know that they ever directly found her name, but it's pretty much believed that um, Kirsten Cinema is running this incredibly robust Facebook marketplace account. And if you look at some of the timestamps, she's passing legislation and then giving feedback to potential buyers um, in real time. Um, very productive person. You know, we've, we've you know derided her a lot, but. You know, she's quite entrepreneur in this case. Um, Catherine, um, obviously you can just talk about Facebook Marketplace if you want to, but in the context of a U.S. senator, you know, being a purveyor of this thing, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, congratulations for, you know, uh, upcycling and recycling your, uh, your uh, possessions. That's a good thing, but... Uh, it does seem a little odd to be selling bicycles and clothing and uh, for a U.S. senator, but I, 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 as far as as far as timestamps, yeah, it seems like maybe you could be doing 
the work, the people's work instead of the, you know, Facebook marketplace work. But uh, I guess, you know, if she's, if she can multitask, good for her, but seems a little odd. <laughs> yes, um, Tim, um, you know, you read, I sent y'all the article, I sent you some thoughts. What did you make of this? Described at the beginning of this article as a side hustle. <laughs> that seems to be an interesting uh, term to place in the lap of a United States senator. Um, it's just another thing about Kirsten Cinema that we've talked about where we kind of don't know where she's going or what exactly she's doing or why she's doing any of it. She has this, obviously, shall I say, colorful wardrobe, or should I say bizarre, and apparently she's sharing it with the world. I'm looking at a list of some of these things. Uh, I'm not sure what a puffer jacket is, but apparently she has some of them for sale, and along with some nice stiletto shoes, and I didn't. I, I, I'm a little. I, I'm a little perplexed about a trucker's hat being for sale, but uh, well, high heel boots. I know she wears a lot of them, and uh, she's got a lot of cycling stuff, like you mentioned. And um, you you could you could pick yourself up, David, a nice bikini. You know, really cheap. Uh, and she's probably making a, a few bucks uh, on it, but my question remains, as it does with many things she does and says, why? So you tell me, David, why? <laughs> now, the why is the hardest question. By the way, that trucker's hat, interesting point on that. Apparently, the, the author of that article in Slate pointed out that you could buy that thing new for $29, and she's selling it used for um, thirty, um, so she's actually got a markup there um, for the used trucker's hat. Um, and so, you know, it just it just it's the fact that she has all these pictures. It takes all this planning because you know I don't think she probably trucks all this stuff back and forth from Arizona to um, Washington D.C. So she has the pictures. Just have the knowledge to answer the questions, unless she's got maybe like a didactic memory of every item she owns. I will say this: I, after reading the article, I, I didn't have a negative impression of her. I mean, I, it was really like her organizational skills, her entrepreneurial skills were, you know, I guess net positive from this thing. Um, you know, if she talked about the national debt and paying your bills, you'd say, well, that lady's serious, man. When she buys something she didn't want, she sells it off, recoups, recoups some of her losses. Um, you know, it was just very, very fascinating. But the time issue, like Catherine was mentioning, um, she is like, I mean, like the, the, the Defense of Marriage Act, which she was a, a co-sponsor of, she was back and forth answering questions while that legislation was being passed. You would think that You'd have to shepherd this important bill over running this online yard sale. Um, 
essentially. I, I don't know. I've actually looked well, at things on Facebook Marketplace. Not a big user of it either way, but I will say this. Um, it, it's probably maybe the most useful service on all of Facebook. Um, Catherine, have you had much experience with it? No, uh, uh-uh, none. Tim? No, I've never sold one thing online, not one thing. Never used any service to do that. Yeah. I mean, I do know that people use things like Craigslist and eBay but, but to let, really let, make let, a living. Let, um, let, but let me, let me ask you a senator. Yeah, let me ask Tim? you a question, though. You, you, there was something you brought up. She's on the floor of the United States Senate while major legislation is being debated doing this. Don't you think the Senate ought to amend their rules and put a stop to stuff like that? Uh, Yeah, I guess there's just no way to, uh, in the past, to police these kind of things because, you know, when the Constitution was written, who could uh have envisioned a pocket computer that could do all these things? So the well, really here, you would have to update our rules to be yeah. Here's the rule. Here's yeah. Here's the rule. No cell phone. No cell phones or electronic devices on the floor. Wouldn't that fix it? <laughs> so, you, but but no electronic devices. Yeah, I mean, but then here's the thing. Uh, there's actually, I guess, two things now. One, you know, you use a computer, a laptop as a research tool, which it can be used to really find facts about the legislation you're voting on. Now, obviously, you can run your eBay business, your Craigslist, your Facebook marketplace off of there. Second thing, and I've noticed this more and more, and the first time or two I saw it, it really, I guess it showed my, you know, older generationalist. You know, when somebody reads a speech off a cell phone, the first time I saw that, I'm like, what are they reading off their phone? And you're thinking, well, that's going to become, you know, such a commonplace thing is more and more people are far more comfortable with their phone than probably a, you know, pen and paper. Um, so it's going to be one of those, in, you know, things where it's going to have to probably be not the whole device, but you can't conduct outside business, you know, while you're, you know, doing your job on the Senate floor, the House floor, you know, possibly even in your House and Senate offices. Um, But then, of course, you get into, like, what if somebody was selling their family home and they had to take a call on it? Um, And then, of course, are you discriminating against people that are single? If you have a spouse, oh, I need you to handle that while I do this job. Well, if they're single – they don't have a spouse to help handle these things. So it's, it's going to be some interesting discussions out of this, although I really do think with a $200,000 you know, job a year, she probably could sell a little less crap online and still make ends meet. Um, and do it on this the floor of the Senate, yes. most important. Because I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess if I was buying a high-end bicycle, I don't know that I have to have it now. I probably could wait, you know, a, a few more hours to get my answer about what type of tires it has or whatever questions you mm-hmm. answer. Now, trucker, right. I mean, that's probably I got to know right now, you know, how, how many holes <laughs> does it, you know, adjust or whatever. Um, <laughs> once again, thanks again to Tegan Goddard for coming on the show, and we'll be back 
on January 8th, our guest is um, former Floridian political consultant. I do mean very, very former, like she just moved just in the last few weeks, Julie uh, Solaria. And she's going to come on and tell us about Florida, but then segue into how she's no longer a Floridian at some point in that conversation. So we're looking forward to the new year. Until then, to the Kudzu Vine. Good evening, guys. Thanks, everyone. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom?